I once was lost, what postmodern skeptics taught us about their path to Jesus. Written by Don Everts and Doug Shoup. Narrated by Maggie Nahara. Introduction. Meet the authors. All 2,000 of them. If you are a bit leery of anyone that claims to know anything conclusive about anything postmodern, then you are in good company. So are we. The two of us have been ministering on the front lines of these confusing, mysterious cultural shifts since they became unmistakable in the early 1990s. And any time someone has tried to define or clarify or label all these changes, it has always seemed a bit cartoonish and naively overconfident to us. The more sure the conclusions are about so-called postmodernity, the more incredulous we tend to become. If Microsoft Word still draws a red squiggly line underneath postmodernity, we figured it's still a bit too early to go jumping to conclusions. So we've just kept on ministering daily among college students, those who are riding the front waves of these inexorable, invisible shifts. Yet here we are, more than 10 years later, attempting to say something clear about postmodernity. Well, let's be specific. We are attempting to say something clear about postmodern conversions. And we don't feel that we have to say is cartoonish or even naively conclusive. Find this hard to believe? We empathize. So before you toss this book aside as another misguided attempt to describe the indescribable, please allow us to explain ourselves. Our stories. Don Everts and Doug Shoup here. We are both missionaries to the college campus in the United States. We labor inside a campus movement called Intravarsity Christian Fellowship that's been around these parts since the 1940s. As members of this Intravarsity movement, we walk alongside college students as they consider the world of faith in general and the revolution of Jesus in particular. Don has been at this since 1994 and is currently working with students and campus staff in Colorado. Doug has been at it even longer, laboring among students and staff in Los Angeles and various other cities in Southern California. Doug. When the campus first entered the twilight zone of postmodernity, we knew we were in for a ride. In the early 1990s, we could feel the tectonic plates shifting underneath us on campus. The students we work with increasingly viewed the world around them in entirely different ways from what we were accustomed to. Though the tremors of change had been around for decades, the big postmodern shift became unavoidable in the 1990s. Students weren't responding in the same ways they had before. Sharing the truth of Jesus' gospel no longer moved people. Our evangelistic labors resonated less and had less fruit. We were confronted with the tension of tough questions. How do we find our footing on this shifting terrain? How can we offer Jesus in this new milieu? How much are we willing to embrace and be changed by this seismic upheaval? Tentatively at first, then with greater courage and resolve, we entered the new postmodern world. The 1990s became a decade of great experimentation and risk-taking as we learned to offer Jesus to the next generation. By 1995, we had jumped into the postmodern world with everything we had, no holds barred, no looking back, and what a ride it has been. Within the campus ministry ranks of InterVarsity, across the country, many people began wrestling with these shifts on campus and how to respond to them. What do discipleship, evangelism, missions, scripture study look like for these new students? As a movement, we all experimented and prayed and failed and succeeded. It was the beginning of an exhilarating season. Dawn Most of our labors have been on campuses in the Rocky Mountains. Cultural observers have often noted that new trends and shifts 
in the wider culture always seem to hit campus first, and I have found this to be true. They also observe that cultural shifts and movements begin on the two coasts and then make their way into the middle of the United States over time. I have found this to be true as well. So while my staff and I are definitely feeling these cultural shifts in the 1990s, it always seemed that our colleagues on the coast were being hit harder and faster. In terms of evangelism, we were beginning to calmly ask questions, while Doug and his folks were having to experiment or die. So over the years, I decided to become a student of the coast to follow their experiments in evangelism and see what they were learning. This was how I ran into Doug and his friends. They were taking risks in evangelism and coming to some interesting conclusions about postmodern conversions. And while many of their attempts were intriguing in and of themselves, it was the fruit itself that held my gaze. Doug and his staff never claimed to have found the silver bullet, but they were around hundreds of postmodern folks who were investigating the person of Jesus and becoming Christians. From 1996 to 2007, their region had seen more than 2,200 considerably Postmodern folks walked the path to faith in Jesus. The numbers caught my eye, but the stories were what caught my heart. These were real students, Matthew and Abner and Mark and Susan. I met some of them and marveled at their stories. These students were becoming powerful believers, many of them becoming missionaries, pastors, and evangelists. On more than 36 campuses in Southern California, both urban and suburban, the InterVarsity staff were surprised and delighted to begin seeing a higher percentage of conversions than most other regions of the country. So when Doug and his fellow campus missionaries started telling their stories and writing down what they had been learning from these new believers about the postmodern path to faith, I leaned in. I wanted to hear what they had learned and were learning, and I'm glad I did. A surprising consensus. While we encountered many wonderful books about postmodernity and even postmodern evangelism specifically, We became really interested in getting some real-life data about evangelism and conversion directly from the new postmodern context we walked and labored in day after day. So we began talking about these new Christians, about what happened to them. We walked with our own friends. We gathered staff from various campuses and heard their stories of students coming to faith in Jesus. We interviewed new Jesus followers and listened intently as they told us their stories. And during this process of curious and pretty joyful investigation, we began to detect some deep, overarching lessons from their collective experience. To our initial surprise, we noticed certain common experiences among our friends' journey to faith, and we celebrated all the conversions we had witnessed. The same things were popping up again and again. These general themes were so prevalent, in fact, that a group of us came up with what we started calling the five thresholds in an in-house working document that sought to give words to what we were seeing. This unpublished article began to circulate a bit. Then the news began to trickle back to us. Our friends around the United States, and even in other parts of the world, found these five phases to ring true for them in their own context. We were stunned. Had these particular new believers actually taught us something generally true about the postmodern path to faith? The more confirmation we got as the years went on, the more we realized we were on to something real and true about conversion in this postmodern world. For those of us who came up with these five thresholds in the first place, it feels a little like the TV commercial of the resilient Energizer Bunny. No matter what that silly little bunny goes through, it just keeps on banging that drum. We actually expected the batteries of the five thresholds to die out within a few months, but nearly a decade later, the drum still beats. In fact, a group of 30 of us gathered a few years ago for a conference to kill the bunny. Our task was to poke holes in it and dismantle the five thresholds with our latest stories of folks coming to faith in Jesus. 
After a rigorous day of discussion and debate, the five thresholds shocked us by emerging from the fray largely unscathed. The bunny was still alive and marching. It would seem that all those new believers have taught us something. These real people had real conversion experiences, and their stories have taught us something real and true about the postmodern path to faith. And here's the kicker. The more clearly we see the postmodern path to Jesus, the more natural and relevant and regular our witness becomes and the more fruit we see in evangelism. Understanding the postmodern path to faith is both freeing and empowering for those engaged in the kingdom tasks of evangelism. Mark and Abner and the hundreds of others who have walked from the land of the lost into the kingdom of Jesus have steered us right. We take joy in their new lives and are indebted to them for their honest reflections on their spiritual travels. It's their consensus about that journey that gives us the pluck to write this book. In reality, they are the true authors here. They once were lost, but now they have been drawn into Jesus, and they have something to teach us all about coming to faith. The Postmodern Path to Faith I can remember that afternoon as if it were yesterday. I, Doug, was standing out in the middle of the green grass of the quad on campus, singing as loudly as I could. Twenty of my Christian friends and I were holding guitars and singing to witness to the students who lounged nearby on the sunny patches of grass in the middle of the Cal Berkeley campus. We wanted to show our fellow students our authentic joy and love for Jesus. What better way to witness than with bold worship? And man, did we grow that day. It was a profound faith experience for all of us who were willing to be fools for Christ. We stood publicly and shamelessly for the gospel. Our faith was tested and affirmed. But for those who were trying to catch some rays on the lawn, well, no one was curious about issues of faith after our public spectacle. Instead of being attractive or intriguing witnesses for Christ, we were just one more random thing in their day, it seemed. Our bold worship had grown our faith, but it made for weak evangelism. Our fatal flaw? We came up with our evangelistic strategy while we were alone in a room together with a bunch of Christians. Not once in our brainstorming and planning did we ask where our non-Christian fellow students were coming from. Not once did we try to find out what they might need to take a step toward Jesus. We were mostly coming up with something we wanted to do, not something that would be actually helpful to those unsuspecting sunbathers in the quad. I'll never forget that afternoon. Over the past 20 years, we have had many such awkward moments as we slowly learned helter-skelter to walk the path of faith with our skeptical and cynical friends. Since that worship on the grass event, God has granted us the humbling privilege of walking the journey of faith with more than 2,000 people who were once lost but are now followers of Jesus. Seeing all these conversions is exhilarating and humbling because we clearly remember all the inglorious and even embarrassing moments that were part of the learning journey. But seeing all these folks coming to faith in Jesus had done something else to us as well. It has taught us about conversion. Somewhere along the line, we started asking the questions we never asked before going on the quad that afternoon. What is it like for those who are lost to take steps toward Jesus? And how can we truly be helpful to them on that journey? There are two foundational truths about conversion that all these new believers have taught us over the years. Two foundational truths about what it's like to become a Christian in this postmodern age. It's mysterious. The first lesson they have taught us about the path to faith is that it is, in the end, mysterious. Again and again we found ourselves marveling at transformations that we never would have anticipated and shaking our heads in frustration at those who seemed near to faith but never got there. The gospel seeds that had been planted in some grew in spite of the weakness of our efforts. 
Other seeds that we tended with great care never took root. Ultimately, the postmodern path to faith is a mystery. It reminds us of the truth of Jesus' parable in Mark 4, 26-27. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, and whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. As kingdom farmers in postmodern soil, we must welcome this mysterious nature of that path to faith. In fact, there is something spiritually liberating when we admit and declare what is beyond us and where we are powerless. We cannot create life. It is impossible for us to predict why some of our friends will choose Jesus and why others just won't. We don't know how to change hearts. We don't know which seed will take root and which will bounce off the hardened ground. This lesson has freed us from the modern temptation to view conversion as mostly a psychological phenomenon, an inner event that can be controlled and manipulated and triggered if we preach the gospel just right, sing the worship songs loud enough, and dim the lights at just the right time. If conversion were psychological and controllable by humans, we'd be under a lot of pressure to get it done. Our friends have reminded us that conversion is much more soul-deep and mysterious than all that. The path to faith is mysterious. To admit that is liberation. The monkey is off our back and onto God's back, where it belongs. The scriptures teach us that God is ultimately in control of salvation. No one, Jesus reminded his followers, can come all the way down the path to Jesus unless God calls them. John 6, 44 and 65. When we plan outreach events, when we pray for our neighbors, when we consider whether to honestly answer the friend who asks about why we serve the poor, let us learn from the farmer in the parable. Let us look the seed in the eye and say, You are a mystery to me. I am about to throw you out there, but I still don't know how you really work. This is the first thing we have to learn from our new brothers and sisters about the postmodern path to faith in Jesus. And it is an important lesson to learn. It's important to hold on to this truth because it is so tempting to grasp for control. Instead of living in this freeing biblical truth, we are often tempted to try to predict and reduce and control the mystery. In order to keep embracing the truth of the mystery of conversion, we need to beware of declarations of certainty. This is how to program evangelism. This is how to share the gospel. This is how to reach seekers today. The postmodern new believers we've walked alongside would warn us against such declarations. Heeding this lesson, we choose to humbly embrace the mystery of conversion like the farmer in the parable. It's organic. The second lesson this group of new believers has shown us is that the postmodern path to faith is organic. As we sat and listened to their stories, we were struck immediately by the mystery, but also by the similar seasons of growth that each of them went through. Five distinct seasons, in fact. These are what we came to call the five thresholds. While this second lesson surprised us, we have found it to be an equally important lesson to learn. Remember how Jesus' parable ends? All by itself the soil produces again, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Mark four twenty-eight to 29 In this lesson, we are able to recognize the different stages of growth, seed, stalk, head, full grain, ripe, and seek to love our non-Christian friends wisely and sensitively, adjusting to where they are in their growth. The farmer in the parable can see the different stages of growth and act accordingly. Seeing this organic nature of heading to Jesus has freed us from the temptation to see conversion as primarily binary. 
If our most sophisticated understanding of the path to faith says that our neighbor is either a Christian on or not a Christian off, then we tend to have just as unsophisticated a response to them. If they aren't a Christian, well, it's time to pull out our evangelism shotgun to try to force the switch to the on position. That's what it means to do evangelism, after all, which tends to explain why we so rarely engage in evangelism. But just as no farmer would spend all their time scattering seeds, or all his time swinging a sickle, we see such one-trick evangelism as foolish spiritual farming. There are five distinct seasons of growth that we've noticed again and again. Realizing this organic way that people make their way down the path of faith frees us to respond to our friends' particular needs at the time. While one-trick evangelists always seem to annoy our friends, they've also told us that they would never have traveled all the way to Jesus if someone hadn't come along and helped them with the different parts of the journey they were on. But if the path to faith really is organic, if there really are five distinct thresholds along the way to faith in Jesus, then is it really mysterious? Is conversion mysterious or organic? It's both. In the end, the path to Jesus is both mysterious and organic. Back to Jesus' whole parable. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Mark four twenty six to 29 This image Jesus paints is full of tension, isn't it? At the same time, it underlines the mysterious, uncontrollable nature of conversion. The farmer sleeps, and yet the seed grows in ways he can't understand. And the need for work, scattering seeds, harvesting with the sickle. While it affirms the hidden nature of change, it happens at night when no one is looking. It also shows the natural organic process that change follows. First seed, then stalk, then head, then the crop is ready. While the growth of the plant is mysterious, it still follows nature. It is organic, and that means that for the seed to become a ripe plant, it will grow in a certain way. This was a lesson our friends were teaching us. Each individual path to faith was a unique mystery, and their collective paths to faith had surprising similarities. These tremendous people, who once were so jaded about Christianity, who are now dedicated believers, had told us, in surprising unison, that the path to faith these days is both mysterious and organic. So their stories place us in attention. How do we stand in awe of the mysterious growth, while at the same time helping them to the next natural threshold along the path? Well, living in that tension is what the five thresholds is all about. The five thresholds of postmodern conversion. So what are these similar landscapes along the path to faith, these so-called thresholds of postmodern conversion? Of course, these look different in different people. They are paced differently. They are always experienced in the very real-life colors and context of each person. Enough qualifiers yet? But there are five significant shifts that tend to go on in postmodern folks as they come to faith. First, our friends moved from distrust to trust. Somewhere along the line, they learned to trust a Christian. Mark was guarded and aloof. He did not trust us Christians. This kept him far away from exploring Jesus with us. It was impossible for him to shed that distrust. But then something wonderful and mysterious happened, and Mark crossed this threshold. Second, they moved from complacent to curious. The fact that our friends actually came to trust a Christian didn't necessarily mean that they were at all curious about Jesus. 
Matthew, for example, had started trusting a Christian, but was pretty uninterested in Jesus. Matthew was successful and had everything going for him and had no reason at all to be curious about Jesus. But then, something wonderful and mysterious happened, and Matthew crossed this threshold. Third, our friends moved from being closed to change to being open to change in their life. Interestingly, this always seemed to be the hardest threshold to cross, not for all of them, but for most of them. Abner, for example, had started trusting some Christians and was even asking questions about Jesus. He was very curious, but he had no interest at all in examining his personal life. That was off limits. But then something wonderful and mysterious happened, and Abner crossed this threshold. The fourth threshold is the move from meandering to seeking. Even when our friends became curious about Jesus and opened a change in their life, it didn't necessarily follow that they began actively, purposefully seeking God. It was more natural for them to meander. Steve, for example, was very intrigued after some Christian students whom he met sleeping in cardboard boxes at an event to raise awareness and dollars for the homeless talked with him about Jesus. Steve accepted invitations to Bible studies, worship, and even to a mission trip to Mexico. But he wasn't necessarily wanting to come to conclusions, to really seek answers. But then something wonderful and mysterious happened, and Steve crossed this threshold. Finally, each of our friends had one more threshold to cross. They needed to cross the threshold of the kingdom itself. They needed to repent and believe and give their life to Jesus. Many people who journey well along the path to faith learning to trust a Christian, becoming curious about Jesus, becoming open to personal change, even seeking after answers, never become Christians. Sarah might have been one of those folks. She was interested in Jesus. She loved her new Christian friend and even went to conferences and Bible studies. But she was a scientist and couldn't imagine becoming a person of faith, not without physical proof. But then something wonderful and mysterious happened, and Sarah crossed the threshold into the kingdom itself. What do you do with these thresholds? These foundational lessons about conversion have been freeing for us to learn. Understanding the mysterious nature of the path has freed us from activism and ushered us into a humble place of wonder and prayer. And understanding the organic nature of the path has freed us from the frustrations of one-trick evangelism and empowered us to get involved in the specific unfolding mysteries of our friends. We can now look at someone and ask, where are they on the path? Once we figure out more or less where they are, we can more easily empathize with their situation. We can fully appreciate the wonder and importance of where they are. A few years ago, my, Doug's son, Mark Lee, entered the first grade and ran up against a powerful threshold, reading. Though he was fluent with the alphabet, he could not put words together. He would look at the first letter of a word and then just throw out a wild guess. He was frustrated. Would he ever learn to read? It seemed impossible. For my part, I couldn't remember what it's like not to be able to read. Words instantly have meaning and understanding seems to come naturally. Yet it would have been ridiculous for me to say, what's the problem? Just read. We see learning to read as crossing over a threshold. On Mark Lee's side, the threshold seemed intimidating and insurmountable. He almost can't imagine life on the other side. For us, the threshold seems easy to cross, almost insignificant. The spiritual thresholds that our non-Christian friends go through today are just like this. From where they stand, the next threshold seems insurmountable, no matter how obvious or easy it appears to us. They are in the land of the loss, which colors how each successive threshold appears to them. Lostness, of course, looks different depending upon your perspective and personality. It is like getting lost while driving. Take our friend Jenny, for example. 
When she drives and gets lost, she is often so caught up in the scenery or the conversation that for a long time she doesn't even realize she is lost. She just keeps going farther and farther from her intended destination. Then there are those like me, Doug. I know when I'm lost, but I'm pretty sure I can figure it out by intuition. I admit I'm lost, but I expect I'll find my way any minute now as soon as I take the next corner. Finally, there are those smart people who know they are lost and know they need to get some directions. They stop and ask for help. It's important to remember these different ways lostness can feel. Lost may be an accurate description of non-Christian friends from our perspective, but it may not feel like lostness to them. We can't know what each threshold feels like for the person going through it, but we can ask and listen. This is what we did. We asked our friends to describe each threshold to us from their perspective, and here we try to use their words to talk about each part of the journey. And the great news is the better we listen, the better we can serve those on the journey. If someone hasn't even crossed the first threshold, for example, we can stop handing them copies of More Than a Carpenter and realize they are at a place where considering the claims of Jesus isn't the issue. Just trusting a Christian is the issue. And handing them that book, even if it's done out of love, might actually push them even further from crossing that first threshold. Knowing where someone is on this postmodern path of faith can help us empathize with them. It can soothe our frustration as we realize how insurmountable that next step may appear to them. And it allows us to ask another wonderful question. How can I enter into the mystery of this stage of their growth? If a friend hasn't even begun trusting a Christian, we can stop hounding them to go to church with us and try to figure out how to build trust with them. If our neighbor has been past the first four thresholds for years and is an active seeker, we can stop trying to build trust and try to figure out how to help them cross that final threshold. Of course, these thresholds are not magical or prescriptive. The reality is not everyone will cross a threshold. Not everyone will become a Christian. Even if we become aware that someone hasn't even crossed the first threshold, that doesn't mean they will end up trusting us or any Christian, no matter how much we try to be trustworthy. Some people will never receive the seed. Jesus was very clear about this. For example, in Mark 4, 14-19. What these thresholds are is helpful. The more we heed the lessons of those who have walked this postmodern path to faith, the more freedom and joy we experience, and the better we are able to love our other postmodern friends. In the next five chapters of this book, we will look more carefully at each successive threshold. We will highlight their characteristics by telling the stories of some of our friends, and will then consider what we have learned about stepping into the mystery of crossing each specific threshold with our friends. After walking through each of the five thresholds, we will unpack the journey of new believers, followed by a few concluding thoughts on how to use the five thresholds. If anything helpful comes out of this, credit is due to our wonderful new brothers and sisters for their honesty and vulnerability and faith. Anything confusing or muddy likely comes from the two of us. We pray we might be faithful storytellers of those who once were lost but now are found.